Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone knows the renowned seven wonders of the world, but few have set eyes on them. For in order to do so, you have to arrange a long journey to the land of the Persians, on the far side of the Euphrates. You have to visit Egypt. You must then change direction and go to Elia in Greece. Then you must see Halicarnassus, a city-state in Caria, and Ephesus in Aeonia. And you have to sail to Rhodes, so that being exhausted by lengthy wanderings over the Earth's surface and growing tired from the effort of these journeys, you finally fulfill your heart's desire only when life is ebbing away, leaving you weak through the weight of years. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. Those are the words of Philo of Byzantium, promoting the idea of the seven wonders of the world. On today's episode, I'm going to be chatting with Professor Michael Dennis Higgins, author of the new book, The Seven Wonders of the Ancient World, Science, Engineering, and Technology, out now from Oxford University Press in both physical and digital formats. It's an absolutely wonderful book, and we've actually used it already as a source on the show in our series on mud, specifically in our section on mud bricks. So I'm delighted to have the author on the show. Uh, when we set this up a couple of weeks ago, we decided to just focus on a single wonder as opposed to all seven of the wonders of the world. So we're going to be talking about the Colossus of Rhodes. Let's get right to the interview. Hi, Michael. Thanks for coming on the show. It's my pleasure to be along. The book is The Seven Wonders of the Ancient World, Science, Engineering, and Technology. Uh, it's a terrific read. Uh, tell us, how did this project come together? Well, the, the project was actually inspired many years ago by my father. My father was a curator at the uh, British Museum. 
after he died, I started uh, thinking about what he had done, and he'd written on a chapter on the Colossus of Rhodes for the uh, for a book on the Seven Wonders of the Ancient World. And so I thought, well, why not update it a bit? Because there would be nothing really done um, seriously on the Seven Wonders in almost 40 years. So um, hence my book. Now, we're only going to be focusing on on the one particular wonder for today's conversation, the Colossus of Rhodes. But uh, I thought you might remind our listeners where and when this whole concept of the seven wonders of the ancient world comes from. Well, it the idea broadly comes from the third century BCE. It's a sort of a kind of modern, like a modern bucket list of, of things to see before you die. And it may seem rather surprising that that these kind of uh, uh, lists, you know, existed at that time. Now, it's true that there wasn't very much tourism in ancient Greece, and that was partly because travel was by by sea, and there was a, a lot of problems with pirates. But into Roman times, there was a, a, a well-established uh, tourist industry in Greece and Egypt and, and Roman and all the rest of it. In fact, we actually have a, a tourist guide from the second century BCE, um, where he describes all the places he went to. There were many lists, but the most popular and the one that's come down to us now it starts, of course, with the pyramids. You, you can't avoid them. The gardens of Babylon. The walls of Babylon as well, although that was subsequently uh, replaced by the pharos. Uh, the statue of Zeus at Olympia. The tomb of King Mausolus. Um, the temple of Artemis. And, of course, the Colossus of Rhodes. And the question always is, why, why were these things chosen? And they were probably chosen for their size, um, their beauty, uh, and their engineering challenges. But also, there's another aspect that, that almost all of them have some kind of indirect or direct link with uh, Alexander III of Macedon. He was the uh, great conqueror who was known as the great by those who were not unfortunate enough to have been conquered by him. Now, narrowing in on the island of Rhodes, where uh, the, the Colossus of Rhodes is, uh, is or was positioned. Um, now, unfortunately, the island of Rhodes is, is currently in the news due to destructive wildfires. So a refresher might not be as essential uh, for, for listeners as it, as it normally would be. But uh, could you go ahead and position Rhodes for us geographically and, and I guess geologically? Well, it's a, it's a biggish Greek island in the southeast Aegean Sea. It's uh, near the Turkish, Turkish coast. Um, in antiquity, it was known as a, as a warm, sunny island. In fact, it was sacred to the sun god Helios. And the story is that, uh, that Zeus had divided up the world between his, his brothers. But Helios was away. And when he came back, he found that, that he hadn't been allocated anything. I guess they perhaps uh, held the meeting during the night, so he wasn't there. But um, Zeus offered to redivide up the world, but uh, Helios saw an island appearing in the south and asked for it, and that was Rhodes. And so, in a sense, the people still worship the sun there, of course. It's a major holiday destination. Um, unfortunately, it is hot, it's sunny, it's dry for a huge amount of the, the a very large amount of time every year. And so, it's very susceptible to, to fires which we're seeing now with the, with the hot weather and that throughout Greece. And it's also susceptible to earthquakes, which come into the story of the Colossus quite a, quite a bit. Now, yeah, turning to the, the, the Colossus itself, um, I think that many of us have seen illustrations of it, but, but really what, what was this Colossus? So what do we think it looked like? 
Okay, it was a huge statue, um, probably 33 meters high, because we have some descriptions which say how big it was. That's 100 feet. And it was made of bronze. Now, we don't have any really detailed description. Most people seem to say, well, everybody knows what it looks like, so there's no point in, in, in talking about it. Um, and we don't have any images of it. Uh, although the, the Rhodians actually put uh, on their coins the head of Helios. Um, now, Roman, um, in ancient coins, were obviously they were used for money, but they were also essentially uh, made souvenirs. And so they often had on their coins things that would encourage tourism. And one of them was this image of Helios with uh, curly hair and sun rays coming out of his uh, uh, a kind of diadem. Now, many people have suggested that the, that the image of the head and perhaps of parts of the body was actually inspired by statues of Alexander um, because the um, sculptor who created the Colossus uh, was a pupil of the official sculptor of, of Alexander. And as for the rest of the statue, well, the, 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 most people think that he probably, God probably stood upright. Uh, he was holding a spear in one hand. Uh, this was partly, of course, to stabilize the, uh, the statue. And he may have held a torch above his head. So if you want to think of what it looked like, well, you know, clearly the Statue of Liberty was inspired by uh, this idea of, uh, of what the statue looked like. And it, it was created to uh, commemorate a very important event in 305 BCE. Now, at this time, Rhodes uh, was a quasi-independent um, uh, kingdom, and it was caught between two major powers, uh, which were ruled by the successors of Alexander. So Alexander had died some time before, and he just his empire had been divided up, and two of the big chunks were Egypt to the south and Macedonia to the north. And Rhodes was kind of caught in, in a proxy war between these two, uh, two major states, and Macedonia attacked Rhodes with a fleet of ships. Uh, the Egyptians came to the rescue and defeated the Macedonians. And when the Macedonians left, they basically just ran as fast as they could. And they left behind most of their military equipment, um, including some huge siege towers. And these were towers that were built of wood and iron and bronze. Um, some of them maybe are up to 150 feet high, 50 meters high. And that perhaps come back into the story a bit later. So these towers had rams at the base of them. They were covered in iron plates um, to prevent fire arrows setting fire to the whole wooden structure. And the story goes that when the Rhodians uh, finally uh, uh, defeated the Macedonians, that they sold off uh, a lot of the uh, siege towers. But I think actually they probably were wise enough to recycle a lot of the material into the statue because it would certainly make sense and perhaps um, sell off other materials they didn't need. So that was it. Now, you, uh, you discussed that of the three surviving descriptions of the statue, the longest description, uh, like the most detailed description, also seems to present a detailed but implausible construction method. Uh, what are we to make of this? Yes, it's a bit curious. The description you're talking about is by Philo of Byzantium. 
who was a third century um, BCE engineer. And he was the one who may have written the original description of uh, the, the Seven Wonders, although that's somewhat debatable. Now, he talks about how the statue had a framework of iron and stone, which is okay so far. It would have had to have been built on a framework. But then he goes on and talks in great detail about how the bronze was poured on layer after layer, a bit like casting concrete, you know, putting one layer on, waiting for it to solidify, and then putting another layer on. Um, but it's a very brutal way of making a statue, and it would have required a gigantic amount of metal and it would have produced an incredibly heavy statue that would have probably had problems standing up. It's much more likely that the Colossus was actually made like smaller statues because they, had, they hadn't made one this high, 100 feet high before, but they'd made statues that were 30, 40 feet high. So, I mean, they knew how to make big statues. This one was just even bigger. Now, the first stage in all of these, making any of these statues, was to build a full-size model. So this would have had a frame of wood or iron. We don't know whether it's the, the final frame or not, or whether it was some kind of temporary affair. So they would have built a frame uh, of wood and put struts and other bits on it. Um, and finally, smaller and smaller pieces of wood until they could cover the whole thing with plaster and, uh, and make ex an exact model of what they wanted in the final uh, structure. So. They must have needed cranes and a shelter to produce this, this huge structure because it would have taken years to do. And one possibility is that they used the old siege tower uh, or one of the old siege towers or at least its framework. Now, we know these siege towers were maybe um, 30 or 40 feet wide and 100 feet high. They were made of wooden frames, like I mentioned, covered with, with, uh, with metal. So the that what they could have done is dismantled uh, a, a siege tower, moved it, and re-erected it on the base for the statue. Uh, and then they would have used that frame for uh, hauling things up, and uh, also they could put a roof on it so they would be sheltered while they, while they were doing the construction. Because the, building the, uh, the, the statue probably took about 10 or 12 years. So it's kind of nice to think that they were recycled, and perhaps the the size of the um, original siege tower, which would have been large enough to to reach out over the walls so that they could uh, uh, attack the city. Perhaps this is what inspired the size of of the actual statue itself. So the next stage after they'd produced that that model was casting the bronze. First, I'd like to say, you know, what is bronze? As people a lot often get confused with uh, uh, all these different alloys, it's it's an alloy of copper and tin and usually lead. Now, the reason why they mixed up these metals was that all alloys melt at lower temperatures than pure metals, so it's less energy. It's easier to pour. And bronze, this mixture of mostly copper, like ninety percent copper, ten percent tin, and few percent lead, that also flows more readily than pure copper. So it was a much better material. It was harder. Now, copper was available from Cyprus. Cyprus, in fact, even takes its name from, from the ancient Roman name for, uh, for copper. And there are huge deposits there 
which were exploited until quite recently still. They may still be exploited because uh, Cyprus is actually a section of the seafloor that uh, many, many years ago was uh, thrust up above sea level to make, make new land. But uh, I'm sure that many people have seen pictures of uh, black smokers, those hot springs on the uh, on the ocean floor. Uh, the smoke that comes out is actually contains copper sulfide, and so that's how those deposits on Cyprus formed. And so copper from Cyprus was no problem; it had been exploited for thousands of years before then, and it was exploited uh, uh, for many years afterwards. Now, tin is a much more of a, a mystery. Um, we don't know when people discovered that uh, that uh, tin uh, addition of tin to copper would make it melt at a lower temperature or make a harder material, but it was certainly something extremely important. But the problem is where the tin came from, because there isn't a single source like Cyprus. Herodotus, who was uh, writing in the fifth century BCE, talked about uh, the Cassiterites Islands far off in the Atlantic, and that may have been England, uh, Southwest England. Mm-hmm. Uh, or Brittany, but it's also possible that the tin actually came from the Far East, um, because we know that um, the gem material, lapis lazuli, uh, was actually imported from Afghanistan to Europe for uh, a very long period of time. It's present in ancient Egypt. Uh, so we know there were long-distance trade routes all the way as far as the uh, as far as Afghanistan, and it's possible that the a tin came from there, but uh, there may have been just many, many, many different sources. Uh, it was it was obtained by by washing river sediments, a bit like uh, gold, a mm. uh, place of gold, and it may have been essentially a byproduct of gold exploitation in some places. Now, the third component was lead that was added uh, to further reduce the temperature, um, but it was also uh, to stretch the metal because it was incredibly cheap. And the reason was that it was a waste product from the silver mines near Athens, uh, near near Lavrion, which was the source of the of the wealth that that built the Parthenon and and the uh, other monuments of, of classical Greece. It was silver, so there was piles of lead there. So they would import these these materials and perhaps recycle a bit, um, and then they had to cast it. So the way of that is most likely that they cast it was that they would have taken a section of the uh, of the full size model, maybe up to two or three meters wide, uh, two or three meters uh, deep, and they would have covered it with wax. This would have been beeswax, maybe a quarter inch thick, five millimeters. Then they would have carefully removed the the wax model, covered it in clay and baked it to make a mold. So the wax would have drained out. It would have been recycled because it had a lot of value. And they would have ended up with uh, a clay mold with a hole in it, very, very narrow width, just, like I said, a quarter of an inch. So they would then melt metal and pour it into the mold. And then once it was cool, you would break up the mold and clean up the casting uh, because, of course, it would probably have holes in it and other little bits and pieces that need fixing. And then you'd fix those metal sheets onto the framework, the the framework of, of iron and wood, probably mostly iron. 
And the total amount of metal in the in the statue was probably the order of like 130, 150 tons, something like that. So it was it was a significant amount, but it wasn't it wasn't gigantic. They probably would have produced that much copper in Cyprus uh, every year, or or perhaps every six months. So it was it was not it's not an impossibly large amount of material. How would it have looked from afar? Would it do, you, do we think it would have like gleamed in the sun? Would it have been like really splendid to behold? I think initially it would have gleamed in the sun, but of course it would have it would have had a green pattern develop quite fast. Um, I don't think anybody has ever suggested that it was covered in gold. You could have put a thin coating of gold on it. It was sometimes done, but it probably wouldn't last that long. I mean, remember that it was put up beside the sea, and so there was a certain amount of sea spray which would have corroded it. So I think you know it would have looked green, and it would have been seen from some distance out to sea uh, so it was a kind of um, it was a kind of beacon to welcome um, boats into the harbor as well as a symbol of yes look we can stand up to ourselves against the uh, against the Macedonians even if it was our friends the Egyptians who helped us on this one Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. 
And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Now, one of the big mysteries with the Colossus of Rhodes, as you discuss, and, and this is there are similar mysteries with, with other of the, the ancient wonders, um, concerns the, the location. Uh, so we don't know exactly where the, the Colossus of Rhodes stood, right? Right, exactly. We don't, we don't have any fragments of it. Um, we, don't, we haven't actually found where the metal was cast, which would actually probably be something easier to find than the, uh, than the, the fragments of the statue itself, because you know, an old factory is something that nobody particularly wants. So you, you, you should be left remains of it. And it's a bit of a mystery as to, as to why we, we've never actually found uh, anything uh, of where it was, but there's something that is clear: is that there's a there's an image which is endlessly recycled of the Colossus um, straddling the harbor as this uh, giant statue with his legs apart and ships sailing happily between his legs. Well, there is absolutely no suggestion that that was correct. It's completely the fantasy of a, a 16th century illustrator. But I think because of the power of the illustration, it, it you know it's it's a it's a bad idea that you just can't get rid of. Hmm. Um, it would have been technically impossible to actually build a statue uh, with the legs apart like that. And also, if the the statue was thirty three meters high, it's a hundred feet high, including the spear and torch, then the crotch would have only been at about thirty five feet, and it's supposed to straddle the uh, military harbor. And none of the military boats, uh, the Navy boats, could have got in because it would have been too small. Um, so it's, there is no way it stood like that. It's much more likely that uh, it stood on a low mound near the edge of the harbor. That's to say between the current harbor, which still exists, and the city itself. And in fact, the place where we think it stood is actually covered by the palace of the Crusader Knights, which is, uh, was, was erected essentially in medieval times. Although what you see now is essentially uh, a modern reconstruction, because uh, when Rhodes was part of, the, uh, part of Italy, uh, briefly, um, during Mussolini's time, it was reconstructed as a uh, palace for uh, Mussolini. So uh, this, uh, unfortunately, that's what happened now. So there are certain advantages being near the harbor like this. First of all, it was on a low hill, so, so it, was more, it was visible from further out. Um, it was also useful for shipments of metal coming in because they had a lot of weight of metal, and being next to the harbor, they could, they could store it there. Uh, they could have put workshops uh, very easily around the harbor itself, and perhaps the old siege engine was nearby. So they had plenty of space for construction, and also it was far from the uh, corrosive effects of sea spray. Um, because uh, sea spray obviously uh, corrodes bronze very readily. Now you mentioned the, of course, you mentioned the the, the stance of the statue and how we we think that it was likely uh, legs together as opposed to the, to the legs apart. Uh, that is a, a fantasy of illustration. One thing I kept wondering about, though, reading the the chapter, is that a lot of us still have that vision stuck in our minds when we just think of the Colossus of Rhodes. This 
huge metal colossus, uh, you know, straddling the bay uh, right up there, uh, and, uh, you know, in, uh, next to the water. And we think of that and we think, well, that just sounds audacious. Of course it fell down because we don't have, we, we, I don't see statues like that uh, uh, in, in the world today. You know, why would they be able to get away with it back then? And uh, I was just wondering if, do you think that, that these sorts of images and this line of thinking, does it, does it make us sort of take for granted the skill uh, that they would have had in constructing it? Like how you mentioned that this was basically a larger version of statues that they were already building. So was it a truly an, an audacious project or was it maybe not as audacious as we might think? Oh, I think it was definitely audacious. I mean, it really was considerably bigger, probably two or three times bigger than anything they'd constructed before. And remember that it was a very impressive construction and it was much imitated afterwards. There were, there were other statues of this size that were built. One of them will come into the story a little bit later, but it was the Colossus of Nero uh, that was built at Rome. Uh, and it was constructed next to the Flavian Amphitheater, which most people, of course, know as the Colosseum. And the Colosseum was not named because it was colossal. It was named for the colossal statue of Nero that stood nearby. But the problem always with large constructions in, uh, in an area like uh, Rhodes, which is particularly susceptible to earthquakes, is that it collapsed. It collapsed, in fact, only 60 years after, uh, after it was finished in 226. So the problem was that there was an earthquake. There was not perhaps by Rhodian standards a very big earthquake, but the land went down by one meter. And the problem was that the wealth of Rhodes essentially was derived from uh, its trading activity. And the harbor went down one meter. So all the keys uh, were underwater. The military ship sheds where they stored the, the boats, because boats were the military boats were always hauled out of the water, except when they were needed, they were all submerged. And this international trading hub just simply collapsed at that point. Uh, and there were many cities which needed uh, that trade, including Egypt. And so there was a kind of international effort to try and help Rhodes and reestablish the trade. So it was not entirely uh, uh, altruistic that they were doing it. And for instance, Egypt, we know they offered 90 tons of bronze work workmen and money to restore the harbor and the statue. Now, we don't know if it was accepted uh, immediately or accepted at all. Um, what we do know is that the Rhodians consulted the Oracle of Delphi who said, do not rebuild. Now, I've, I probably think that the Oracle of Delphi was a bit like modern, modern uh, management consulting companies. <laughs> People uh, uh, consult them to uh, consolidate the idea that they've already had in their mind. But um, whether they did or did not uh, accept the objection offer is unclear. But the story that has followed on from that was that the remains of the statue lay on the ground for 900 years, nobody stole any of it until the Arabs invaded and sold off the money to a Jewish trader who hauled it away on 135 camels. This story seems extremely unlikely. I can't imagine anywhere in the ancient world where you could have that amount of metal, that amount of wealth in a big pile sitting around for 900 years without anybody stealing it. So 
but that's become again it's 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 the story that's oft repeated but there's another possibility there was a roman historian called eusebius you know, writing in 311 ce and he it's a it's a kind of chronicle year by year that he describes and for about four times he describes in this kind of year-by-year listing that the Colossus was rebuilt. The problem is that we don't know whether he's talking about the Colossus of Rhodes or the Colossus of Nero, because he was actually based in Rome. So hence the problem. But of course, if you could have restored the Colossus of Nero, which was the almost exact copy of the Colossus of Rhodes, except of course with Nero's head on the top, um, if you could restore that one, then you could restore the Colossus of Rhodes too. So um, it, it seems quite likely that many of the Roman emperors did in fact restore the Colossus. And in fact, it may have been rebuilt two or three times. Whether it was built in exactly the same form, rebuilt, we don't know, and we don't know how much of the damage was. But uh, I imagine that that uh, the corrosion probably of, of the statue uh, with an iron core and a bronze exterior would have corroded quite readily. And so even relatively small earthquakes would have, uh, would have certainly damaged it, partly brought it down. So I like to think that, that Eusebius was probably right and that it was actually restored because it certainly uh, was, was something that was incredibly important in people's consciousness. And uh, Roman emperors did sometimes do these kind of altruistic moves uh, just to reestablish their power too. So which case, when did it finally fall and was not restored? Well, probably 142 CE. So this is like 400 years after it was built. There was a huge earthquake in Rhodes. Now we know about this earthquake because the land was uplifted by 4.8 meters. That's uh, what, uh, 14 feet. And imagine that the size of an earthquake needed to push the land up 14 feet. And we know how much uh, they, the land went up. And when that happened, from looking at sea level notches along the north coast of, of Rhodes. Now, the Mediterranean, as, as most people know, has very little tide. So uh, when the uh, waves uh, hit on uh, cliffs, they create a notch. They erode away the, uh, the uh, cliff at at a level, and they and they create a platform because there's, there's essentially no tide, so the waves are always attacking the same level. So during an earthquake, the land will move up or down. In this case, it moved up, and we have the old kind of notch. The old sea level is still visible, and those that visit Rhodes City, uh, Northern Rhodes, can still see these things along all the beaches. This this uh, old notch up on it. So and it gives you the whole history of it. And it certainly was a gigantic earthquake. Um, the trade must have completely been eliminated. The harbor was just kind of wiped out. It was. It would have taken a tremendous. It it did take a tremendous amount of effort to reestablish trade. But if the uh, Colossus fell at that point, it probably was not restored simply because there were so many other things to do. Um, after such a huge earthquake, the destruction of the city would have been almost total, um, as well as all all the buildings and the rest of it. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, in the last chapter of the book, you discuss the idea of reconstructing modern replicas of the Seven Wonders, uh, which which I thought was a wonderful way to round out the book, um, especially given, you know, the book has this um, has this great focus, obviously, on geology, uh, often bringing up the you know aspects of, of of the local geology and the sourcing of materials for the different wonders that I that you know I had never really considered before. I guess I you know and often focus more on just sort of the historical tidbits. Uh, I, I loved all of that, and I love the the focus on the engineering. So, um, with the Colossus of Rhodes in particular, how colossal of an undertaking, if you will, would would it be to rebuild it today and to do it right? I don't think it would have actually been particularly difficult to do to to rebuild now. I mean, we we do have the Statue of Liberty, which is a little smaller, but not not that much smaller. Um, 
the Statue of Liberty is built again on, on a, a metal frame. It's made of copper, it's not bronze. But of course, the Statue of Liberty is not in an earthquake uh, zone, whereas Rhodes, we definitely know it is. There is a, a, a plate tectonic boundary uh, probably about 10 kilometers south of, of Rhodes, uh, where the floor of the Mediterranean drops down uh, from the kind of platform which Rhodes is on right down into the deep ocean. So it's a, it's a place where we regularly get uh, big earthquakes. And like I said, we can have ones with uh, 14 feet of displacement, which is a huge earthquake. So you need to build an earthquake-resistant structure. Um, there certainly are there's a lot of expertise in, in building such structures, uh, especially in places like Chile, uh, where they regularly have very large earthquakes. And I think the way to do it would be to build a, um, a platform, a metal platform, and isolate it seismically from the underlying rock. So uh, you would have a slab of concrete, you'd have uh, rubber uh, uh, blocks, and then on top of that, there would have been a metal frame. And the metal frame could be relatively uh, rigid. Uh, then the statue would have a framework, uh, which would be built onto that base. Again, it would have to have a certain amount of flexibility um, so that. Uh, the amount of vibration that did get transmitted through there would not make the uh, plates of bronze uh, come off the framework. They'd have to be uh, carefully designed in that way. But I, I don't think it would be a, a particularly big challenge to do. The big challenge would be that everybody would expect to rebuild it as a statue straddling the harbor. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, so when I've seen uh, pictures of reconstructions that they're going to do, it's, be, it's, it's been announced several times that they're building a reconstruction. It's you know often portrayed as straddling the harbor. Now, it is actually a harbor that's used now. So the choice is you then have to build a much bigger Colossus, which I think is what what they're, what they're thinking of doing, one that would be not 100 feet high, but 300 feet high. Uh, then, of course, it gets to be a little bit more complicated. But, you know, the question is, do, do they want to rebuild it as something that is somewhat resembles what it was in, in antiquity? Or do you want it as a, as a model symbol of, of roads, in which case it doesn't have to resemble anything that it uh, did that it looked like in antiquity? But it's an interesting problem. It's more of a political problem than anything mm. else. I mean, I rather hope that none of it is ever reconstructed because I rather like visiting Rhodes. And Rhodes is a rather nice place on its own without a very large statue in it. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, the the fact that it was there was ever it was ever built at all, um, you know, what what do you, what does this reveal about like the nature and the scope of the original construction and about the the, the place of Rhodes in the ancient world? I think it was um, it celebrated uh, their worship of Helios, and uh, Helios is as a Greek god is is somewhat neglected. I mean, nowhere else in, in Greece do you find um, statues or worship of, of Helios in any significant. So it was essentially their own kind of personal island god. I mean, his place of Helios is usually taken by Apollo, uh, who had a similar kind of responsibilities. Um, now, Helios, we always talk about the sun god. Actually, he is not quite that. He was the guy in charge of transporting the sun. So he dragged mm -hmm. it on a chariot across the sky and then kind of pushed it through Hades and pulled it up on the other side. So uh, he was more of a kind of wagoneer than a, than a god. <laughs> but 
<laughs> but you know, every every city, every community wants to have its kind of uh, what was it, architect building now, and this is was their architect building uh, uh, from uh, from the third century BC, and perhaps nothing really has changed. People want to have a symbol of their town, something they can put on their coins, uh, something they can use to attract tourists, and that's what it was at those times. I say, not unusual. When you look at the other, the other wonders, they were essentially, perhaps, partly there to attract tourists too, but also for worship as well. Um, I mean, the Zeus uh, statue of Zeus was uh, uh, certainly a very, a very important uh, destination for people to view. The uh, uh, the mausoleum, the the, the uh, was similarly in a, in that kind of way, and of course, the pyramids still are uh, the greatest symbol of of, of Egypt. Well, Michael, thanks again for coming on the show to discuss the book. Again, the title is The Seven Wonders of the Ancient World, Science, Engineering, and Technology. Uh, I I encourage listeners to check this book out because it has uh, has the history, it has the mythology, it has the engineering and the geology. Um, it's, uh, It's just a treat. Well, thank you very much. Thanks again to Professor Michael Dennis Higgins for chatting with us today. The book, again, is The Seven Wonders of the Ancient World, Science, Engineering, and Technology from Oxford University Press. It's available now in hardback and as an ebook. Uh, I highly recommend it. I think you're going to love it. If you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, well, just find us in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, wherever you get your podcasts. We have core episodes of the show on Tuesdays and Thursdays, uh, listener mails on Mondays, short form artifact or monster fact episodes on Wednesdays, and on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. Thanks again to the excellent J.J. Posway for producing the show. And if you would like to get in touch with us, well, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.